0: and Nick W. Greg Hall is our guest today. Greg is Executive Director and CEO of Alligator Energy, a uranium-focused explorer with exploration projects in the Alligator River Uranium Province, Northern Territory, and also uranium project interest in South Australia. Alligator Energy also holds a nickel cobalt project in Italy. The company is listed on the Australian Securities Exchange under the symbol AGE. Mr. Hall, how are you?
1: Very good, thank you, Andrew, I'm keeping well.
0: Well, Greg, you, know, you were kind enough to agree to come on the show and we had met and spent some time together in Adelaide during the Uranium 2019 conference, of which I would point out that you're part of the organizational team for that conference. And what it was for me that Greg really has industry credibility. When you look over his past experience and also due to his extensive Rolodex of industry contacts, Greg really knows most of them, I would say. But first off, Greg, speaking of the Adelaide Conference, uh, can you share with us a little bit of a preview of what folks can expect coming out of the conference this year?
1: Uh, yeah, thanks, Andrew. Certainly, I'm I'm on the organizing committee again. It's chaired by Mark Chalmers, of course, who's US-based but has strong links to Adelaide. Uh, but the organising team comprises both operational and some academic government people we have a uh, we try to have a range of speakers here including some international speakers either in the nuclear industry or in this year we're trying to get speakers from the smr industry as well as some of the nuclear medicine and radiation uh, people here along with explorers uh, from australia from within australia mostly but as we're starting to get a bit of international interest, because it's the only Uranium conference that's still going on in, in uh, Australia, it's Adelaide-based, uh, and uh, of course this is where most of the Uranium production occurs from within Australia. So it's a, um, it's a very good conference, it's well attended, and it is starting to attract some good investor interest. We had good inven- investor interest in the last two years. So it's occurring in the first two days of July, I believe it's first and second of July. But uh, people can check the Australasian Institute of Mining and Metallurgy website to to check for that conference.
0: Well, Greg, let's go back to the early days for you. Who, what got you into this uranium sector? Where did you start? Who did you meet? Where did you end up? Say by the end of last cycle, we'll stop there and then we'll continue.
1: Well, look, um, I grew up in Adelaide uh, and uh, studied mining engineering here um, and worked in a couple of uh, industries, getting experience in tungsten, metal and gold. But uh, before I even finished, uh, graduated, I managed to score a part-time job with a company called Roxby Management Services, which was the WMC and BP company um, exploring and developing the Olympic Dam mine. So I was involved on the Olympic Dam project from the early days 1981 onwards uh, during the final exploration resource and all the studies so uh, as a young engineer getting involved in studies on a 30 to 100 year mine was quite a lot of fun and of course I went to sites was the first ventilation engineer and mining engineer and then uh, became ultimately my manager up there through the construction development period so that's when I had a lot of my first contacts with the, the Iranian business not only within the regulatory side in Australia, but of course, with the marketing side, because WMC and BP had marketing people involved with selling the product, both copper and uranium. Post that role, I was seconded to Sweden, to LKB, the iron ore group, where we did a lot of technology exchange, but it gave me the opportunity while I was in Scandinavia to visit um, a lot of, in fact, most of the nuclear facilities in Scandinavia, both the, the reactors, the reactor sites, plus some of the long-term repository research that was going on at Espoo and at Thinland. So uh, that was really what started to spark my interest a lot more, more in the business. I came back to Australia with Western Mining, um, was in the nickel business for about five and a half years, and then departed that to join North Limited, which became uh, was bought out by Rio Tinto, and I became Ranger Mine Operations Manager for about four years. Uh, in the late 90s, and then joined the Rio Tinto uranium marketing team. Um, and did about four years then on marketing of uranium, and that's where I really got uh, my strongest founding for the industry, apart from the operational side. which I had from the dam, I think a lot of uh, founding information for the nuclear business as a whole. Um, the After that role, I had a brief time in bauxite aluminium marketing for Rio Uh, before becoming the founding CEO of Toro Energy Limited in 2006. And Toro was founded on the the fundamental price increase that was occurring then, Uh, uranium uh, assets in South Australia initially, then Northern Territory, and then, of course, we acquired the WALUNA uranium project in Western Australia. We took that to full approval by 2012-13. It was the first mine uh, in Western Australia to receive full approval. I did jump out into the copper business again um, post the the Japanese tsunami uh, and now I'm CEO of Alligator on a, a part-time basis, essentially half-time basis while we build up our assets and, and uh, get the market support. I'm also consulting on copper projects and community political matters here in South Australia and I'm on the board of a, a Swedish resources company, Copperstone Resources. So That's, that's my uh, founding. Uh,
0: Great. Can you tell the audience some more about some of the key people you've come to know in the uranium sector that are still here and why those relationships are important to you? Oh, look,
1: they certainly are. Um, uh, At the time I came into the industry, uh, uh, a lot of the old hands that that are retired now, like James Ziggins, Warren Davies, were in the marketing scene through the 80s and uh, along with a number of people that would be around and retired now. Uh, then when I got into the marketing scene, I got heavily involved with both the the, uh, the Cameco guys who are new, the Arriva people, but in particular in in uh, uh, in the US where I was doing a lot of marketing, I uh, I knew guys like Gunpat Mani, Jim Graham, Fletcher Newton, a lot of them, all the nuclear guys at the time that were around. So uh, that's where I got a lot of my education, shall we say, about the uh, the uranium business and the nuclear fuel business. I was fortunate enough to to do a range of deals involving a combination of uranium conversion and enrichment. So I learned a lot about the sort of packaging of nuclear fuel along with a potential just straight contract. So that was a great education. Um, and and also you, you meet a lot of people who've got very long experience in different aspects of the game. So Mark Chalmers I met back in Adelaide at that time. And uh, guys like Tom Poole who's, uh, probably forgotten more about ISR mining than, than I'll ever know. Um, yeah, there was a lot of players around at the time that, that I learned a huge amount from. and uh, It was a lot of fun in the industry, uh, even though the times were tough. I remember going out when the spot price was around six or seven dollars a pound and uh, having to try and cover costs plus make a profit on a, on a short-term contract. So it, it, it was a tough time in the market.
0: You know, one of the other things you know about quite a bit is some of the people who made many sales of uranium over the years before and going back to the last cycle. Can you speak just a little bit more to your involvement in that side? Some of the people you worked with, even if they weren't on the same team, and maybe if you can, can you give us a story to go along with it?
1: During those uh, early 2000s, marketing days before the price started to really move, yeah, you know, there was a lot of competition. There was long-term contracts coming out in particular from U.S. utilities. And uh, there would always be be a lot of competition between players. Um, of course, we had to keep commercial in confidence. We had to keep, uh, in fact, the U.S. antitrust laws are very, very strong. So you had to be very, very careful about what you're doing. And um, we did try in particular to uh, you know, give a serve to each other. And I remember several golf games uh playing with uh, scott melby and james Dobchuk and others from cameco and uh and every time we would pass them you just give them a give them another serve about uh, a contract or about this nothing that you knew about nothing that was confidential it was all makeup but we we just really gave each other a hard time trying to get the, the competition was strong between suppliers but nonetheless it was was also a uh, a time when uh you you could travel and uh, it was just prior to the to, to the 9/11, but you could you could travel, you get around easily, and so I spent a lot of time in the US talking to groups. And I remember uh, um, catching up with the Exelon guys up in Chicago, and we had a fantastic time. And know uh, um, yeah, had some good business together off and on, but good discussions. But in in general, above above board on commercial sense. But I recall. They had a favorite place they used to go for lunch. So we took them there for lunch and uh, had a great lunch, good chat about things. And then uh, they went back to work, I had to depart. But it was at their favorite pizza place. We drank iced tea, had a wonderful time. And and here I was with the the purchasing group of the biggest US nuclear utility, 21 reactors. And I think I spent about 37 US dollars on lunch. So it was just an amazing feeling to talk with these guys have a great time with them, learn so much from them and their experience, um, but it was just so so easy to do. It was good fun.
0: Well, Greg, you were a mining manager at both Olympic Dam and also the Ranger Mine. Can you speak to some of the key lessons you learned from this experience? And then, you know, <laughs> and how does that apply to, to your experience going into this uh, next cycle for uranium?
1: The Olympic Dam mine, uh, at the time in south australia from the early 80s it had a lot of opposition most of your listeners will recall there was a very strong anti-nuclear sentiment right through the 70s and building up in the 80s and, and that really started to impact the, the business so there was a lot of uh, um, sentiment in south australia against the mine um people would say look why the hell do we need a, a mine at all let alone a iranian mine?" So people really had lost sight of the founding principles of wealth within a state or a country but once we got established, it, it worked well. There was a huge focus on the radiation levels. Now Dam is essentially a fairly low grade the uranium mine. We were starting the, uh, uh, the, it was copper focused in terms of grade, but we were getting about 0.08% uranium initially, now it's down to 0.04, 0.05. Um, but we really had a huge focus on radiation and radiation safety. So we had at least three monthly meetings with the head of the regulator's of the mines department and the and Health Commission. And what I really learned from that was this this industry requires that focus. You, While we're at the levels where there is no danger of getting any impact on people, you have to have the focus on it. So I really learned that focus on radiation, and radiation safety, but also communication. You didn't communicate in the appropriate way with your workforce about these matters. Uh, it was very easy for them to read misinformation and panic. So I learned that a lot from the Olympic Dam Days. We, uh, we started up the mine successfully, and uh, I was there for the first expansion before I moved. Look, in terms of Ranger, one of the key reasons I, I uh, took the role at Ranger was to learn a lot about um, the Indigenous engagement side of the matters. This was about 97, and Australia had gone through some significant change in the first steps in recognition of, uh, of Indigenous rights and uh, a native title. So these were being incorporated. So it was a great chance for me to learn a lot about uh, Indigenous matters. And in fact, it was uh, the fundamental learning I had up there in that region of the Northern Territory and, and across the border into Arnhem Land was Indigenous people really want to get involved in 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 matters. They might be opposed to uranium, many of them. Some are not, but they wanted to be involved and understand. And so um, within um, the Ranger team to, to their credit. They established fantastic communication techniques with Indigenous people, but more than that, we, we really had a procedures in place and, and different training in place to bring Indigenous people into the workforce if they wished to. So we ended up in the open pit workforce uh, of having almost half Indigenous employees, including female Indigenous employees, by the late 90s. So it was a it was a great exercise. It was a lot of learn, learning on my behalf, uh, but but really good fun. And that's stood me in good stead for the work we're doing now in Alligator, where we have engagement with up to seven different traditional owner groups in the Arnhem Land region. So those two fundamental things were my learnings. I mean, you, you always learn about mine operations, and I've managed many mines, but but in those those two areas, the indigenous matters and the radiation matters were my
0: fundamental learnings. Greg, your thoughts on where we are in this uranium market, and what do you see as the final key element to get things <laughs> off the ground this time around?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. <laughs> Look, our, our industry has rarely followed straight supply-demand fundamentals. Through the 70s and the 80s, it was very po- politically driven, with large government-owned enterprises involved, and that includes both Western government enterprises. So there was a lot of exploration for uranium from the 60s and 70s driven by the the nuclear boom and it found a lot of resources Um, so most of the deposits we're mining nowadays many of them were found back in the 60s and 70s and uh, that includes Camecos projects uh, Ranger itself etc then through the 80s there was increasing regulatory costs for nuclear build there was some accidents and there was a very strong growing anti-nuclear activism Pretty well the end of the 80s, early 90s, sparked another massive change, uh, with which noble and the opening up of USSR, uranium stocks within three year period. It created such a long period of low prices for uranium. Again, it, it was largely both accident and politically driven. Now, one of the few fundamental supply demand balance driven booms was in 2004 onwards. Um, there was a growth in nuclear power. There had been no production and very, very little exploration for so many years, and and of course the China um, um, increase in nuclear demand really brought through a massive supply demand fundamental boom. Um, it was also driven by financial markets. Uh, there was a lot of speculation and things, but it was the first, almost the first time, apart from back in the seventies when there was this natural supply demand fundamental balance. Um, of course, it ended with the Japanese tsunami. There was a, a huge amount of fear-mongering about what that, that, that was a significant, absolutely significant disaster, same as Chernobyl was, Chernobyl was worse in terms, but the, the impact of the Japanese tsunami on our industry was similar. Um, the Recovery from that is occurring. There is again, um, strong build with, you know, we've got a 15% growth in nuclear in four to five years, just from new build um and there's no uranium production or very little production Uh, so we're getting back to a time where i think the rising fundamentals are going to come to the fore again i'm not sure whether it'll be more controlled this time and and i and i i debate this frequently with john borshoff who's one of the other great characters uh, of our industry and has huge experience in our industry you know, sometimes we think well surely we're going to get smarter here and let's do a nice manage the price needs to increase to a certain level production should increase we get to the level of supply demand fundamentals but we always go in swings and roundabouts there's a huge crash driven by uh i guess uh, emotion fear sometimes and then that can be followed by a massive boom driven by financial opportunity uh, as well as fundamentals So we're we're going to see uh, an improvement in uranium and nuclear fuel market fundamentals back to the level where you need to make a reasonable profit from your operations. So that's uranium mining from conversion from enrichment. You have to build plants, you have to operate, you have to operate within a strong regulatory environment so there needs to be a, a fundamental cost of production plus reasonable profit that should drive that and we're not there yet we'll have to improve the pricing to get to there. And there's lots of debate about when that will occur.
0: Absolutely, I think the mining industry, without profit, I don't think you would have it. And certainly it's going to come. I think the jury's still out on on exactly when it's going to occur, but can you speak to just for a moment? Yeah, the debate with John would be interesting, but had Fukushima not happened, can you speak to where the price was and the amount of supply coming online? Would it have been different? Would the outcome have been different? Obviously, we know the political and uh, social ramifications would have been different by now. But certainly, the supply side, given the amount that was coming online at, at the price that we saw, was this inevitable that we would have gotten into a bear market? All
1: right. Um, look, going back to the, the original price increase, it was in 2004, 2005 was the start of it. It really built up in 2006, of course. What was interesting about that time? was there been so little work done on new project opportunities or new uranium projects uh, for the last 15 years before that That it took a huge amount of time for supply to react so the price started moving 2004-5 and in fact supply went down in 2005-6 uh, um, so the production actual production from existing operations went down people were trying to scramble and, and increase production from operations but there were some fundamental issues there was a Fire Olympic dam, there was a flood at Macassa River, um, you know, the, the, there's operational matters and occurrences that occur, so production actually went down, it didn't follow price straight away. But then you started to get the buoyancy from new exploration and new potential projects, uh, feasibilities and things that are out there. So you, you, you had um, potential production following the market. But so many people, so many people underestimated what it takes to get a uranium mine going. Um, within Toro Energy at the time, we had our target. Once we had a reasonable resource at Waluna, our target was get approval. Absolutely get approval. Approval is paramount to being able to operate. And I'll, I'll jump out of this story for a minute to go back to one from about uh, late 70s, early 80s. In the late 70s, there were two new uranium projects being explored and developed. One was at Rossing, in Namibia. The other one was at Javeluka in in uh, the Northern Territory. At the time Rossin got approval at a grade of 0.05% roughly and kept going, it's been going for 34 years. Jabaluka at a grade of 0.5%, 10 times the grade, didn't get approval and didn't get going. Sometimes the fundamentals in uranium are about having your ducks in a row, you have the right community government relations and your approval processes, and that will make, mean you can achieve production. So I think we started to see that in the uh, the last boom towards 2008, 9, 10 and into 11, where there were projects advancing through approval and getting approval, which potentially could have gone ahead. At the time of the Japanese tsunami, the Iranian price was $72 a pound and increasing. It had dropped back down from its peak of 130 or so, but it had come back down to around 60, 70, but it was increasing again. So look. Uh, I believe there would have been a, a range of mine startups. Some of them may not have uh, succeeded to make a profit because you, you underestimate the cost of operating a uranium mine. Um, there's a general rule of thumb I use, and that is that if you have a, a new mine to establish requiring capital and you have an operating cost of, let's say, uh, $27 a pound US, you need about double that to kick the mine off as a price. Um, if you already have a, a plant established, that's fine. You can start in a bit lower, but, but in generally, people underestimated what it takes to get a uranium mine going. So I think there would have been a number commence. Uh, I don't think it would have swamped the market because uh, it, it's not that easy to start mines. Ultimately, I would have think there would have been some fundamental supply demand balance. Some of those mines that might've managed to start, let's say from 2011 onwards might've failed, but many would have kept going.
0: But that's my view. And thoughts on three things. What can derail the market going forward? When do you see this actually taking place? What do you see as far as, I mean, if you can give us a range, Greg, I know predictions are, are everybody has opinions and predictions are the same. But can you tell us when you see this market starting to turn, what can derail at this time around and how should investors prepare?
1: We have a growing nuclear demand or uranium demand at the moment from new nuclear build, which I think is on a path that's not going to stop quickly at the moment. It, it's a steady growth rather than a, uh, let's call it a, a massive planned growth from back in 2006-07. So it's a steady growth. Um, there is not enough uranium supply to to supply into that growth at the moment. So new mines have to either restart or come online. So there will be a growth in production going forward. Um, there is a massive build cost in particular in western countries where we, we have had less standardized design and that is probably going to impact um, the build of large nuclear plants in, in uh, let's call them western or OECD countries. There is an increasing build of large reactors in both uh, China, Asia and the Middle East and we will see that for a while. The The unknown to me, and I know a little bit about the technicalities, but not a great amount, is the small modular reactor market. I think this is where there is a chance for a significant change, but it's going to take some time. You know, the first commercialized one may be operating by 2025, um, and then you probably, once they're they're successful and they get really uh, focused on, you might see through through the 2030s, a massive increase in small modular reactors. Now, of course, they use sometimes a different fuel. They use, they use a more efficient basis of fuel generally. Um, but it's, to some extent, it's a bit unknown what demand in the market that will create. But I think in combination with the SMRs coming on, you might see a drop-off in the build of big new reactors, purely simply during, due to cost, regulatory burden, and the time it takes to get them going. So, so you might see a fundamental plateauing or shift of, of, in that case in terms of a political impetus uh, my god it's hard to predict within the nuclear industry right from the day i was involved uh, and especially in marketing what we are so conscious of is that one incident or accident from anyone impacts us all we've seen that every time so i know that within the wayno the world association of nuclear operators and other organizations etc., they focus intensely on the sharing of knowledge and safety and and the openness of safety matters. Now, that has to continue. Another significant accident could could damage that large scale, large reactor nuclear business uh, almost beyond repair. Now, I, I don't know whether that'll occur because so many people depend on the energy, but it's a high risk. So we need to be very conscious of that in all our industries the the other political is there any other political motivation look there's an increase in renewables and I think renewables both wind and and solar are getting cheaper they're getting more efficient they're getting supported by capacity and battery which helps them manage but there's still a fundamental load base needed behind them and that's currently what's going to be gas if the hydro industry takes off that could become a replacement for gas and uh, potentially uh, impact a nuclear facility so uh, the Chief Scientist in Australia gave a recent talk where he talked about this, there's a, a freeway of energy with about seven lanes in it ranging from coal right through to solar at the moment. The, the, the activists in energy want to take it from seven lanes down to two, just solar and wind but that's essentially almost impossible. We have to have a number of lanes, either it's gas or it's hydrogen or it's nuclear in this mix going forward if there is a desire to phase out coal. Um, so whether there'll be a political action which would grow um, that, that could force the phasing out of other sources of power and, and into pure renewables, I don't know. I hope the world's a bit more pragmatic than that, but I but I see we sometimes get a bit carried away.
0: You know, one of the things I I, I think at one at some point going forward, certainly within this decade, that Australia will see nuclear energy come along, and then. With the use of SMRs, I see that as really a net growth because when you take a smaller modular reactor and you start to apply it, and if it gets accepted, starting potentially in the US by 2025 or so, once that starts to get adopted, the small scale of those will be, in my opinion, used more frequently for applications that wouldn't otherwise be available if you were dealing with large conventional reactors. I think that the adaptation of SMRs, if they can get through in some of the major jurisdictions like the US, I see that that really, to me, is a net net positive for the industry, both from a nuclear power standpoint and then also from the mining side. So that's my thoughts on it. Can now, you...
1: just a quick question. I think, I think you're right. I, I think the if Australia is going to adopt nuclear, it'll adopt SMR. We actually are bred enough where it's almost in, impractical or difficult to build a, a big one gigawatt, one half gigawatt reactor. There's only very few places in Australia can handle that. In my own state of South Australia, the, the, the coal plant that shut down was two 260 kilowatt boilers, perfectly amenable to replacing them with two 200 or 250 uh, megawatt SMR. So, I think you're right. I think there'll be places that will use SMR that would not use large reactors, and you you could be right in terms of the net price going forward.
0: Yes, just with regards to renewables, look, we're not going to strap our submarines with wind turbines and solar panels. We're not going to strap our spaceships with wind turbines and solar panels. So, at the end of the day, you know, nuclear is going to prevail. It doesn't compare at this moment, and, and I, I suspect for at least the next few decades, uh, nothing will come along to, to even become close to replacing it given the time frame it takes to do anything. And just the fact that uh, the industry is is reluctant to to convert or change and it takes a significant amount of time to make those changes. But tell us about how how should investors approach the market now? Should they wait or should investors really be prepared and already have have kind of a foot in the water with regards to uranium? Can you speak to how investors should really be prepared at this point in the game if you're looking to use uranium as a vehicle for Mm. investment purposes how should they be placed in 2020
1: well there there does seem to be generally two types of investors that come into the uranium business there's those that that understand the fundamentals a little more and would be willing to take a bit of buy and hold strategy with some funds you know not not massive perhaps but some and so I think you'll find those investors are probably already in the market in their chosen stocks. They like this, they like that, uh, etc. So they're probably already there, and uh, I think I think that's a reasonable thing because uh, we're seeing you know, we're seeing the continuous build of nuclear, the increasing demand, and and the the upset of different political things going on, like the U.S. matters at the moment which any of them get sorted or if there's a fundamental issue in terms of any production in uranium, you'll see a price move. So if you're already set in your favorite company with a certain number of funds, you're willing to hold, I think that's the right right thing to do and that's your style of investing. A lot of the groups that I'm aware of in Australia and some in Europe that invest um, tend to say, I'll come in when I see it's definitely moving. So they're happy to lose the first 10 to 20% growth in the potential target stocks, but they want to make sure there's already a fundamental move on before they come in. So they would be the investors that move from commodity to commodity in, in many ways, and so we'll, we'll try to pick the winner. Um, those guys won't come in early no matter what. But I think the, the fun, those who understand the fundamentals uh, and the readers of your reports and, and other matters would probably already be set in a few key stocks that they'd like. Then it's a matter of saying okay do i jump into some greater risk stocks uh, do i sit and hold with some of the more certain ones that's almost the question you want to take now and uh, i'm i'm trying not to get into a price prediction of when things might move but i am more heartened by the fact that there's some, a little buoyancy in the conversion enrichment pricing off and on uh, that will start to impact Things such as the uh, the secondary supply of uranium, and, and I think that's where there's there's a, fir- a first change in those nuclear fuel costs will start to begin get a change in uranium.
0: Absolutely, I agree, Edward. There, that's starting to occur. I think there are some of the folks that are waiting on the sidelines, I think they're not going to be able to get in until it's three f- to five hundred percent before they get convinced. Because if you take a look back at 2016. Mm. you had fantastic moves with just about all of the stocks in the sector. Oh, yeah. um, I mean, I mean, I don't think there was any stock that didn't go to 300%, and I know of some that got close to 800, 900% just in 2016 alone, just off that, what was it, maybe a 10-month period. Mm. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with those folks when they decide that they realize that now, yeah, this is the uptrend, let's get in. So it's going to be interesting to see how that goes, but I, I think you're right. I think that you do have those those types that are that are hanging around, I guess, and uh, are watching what's going on. Well, let's talk about Alligator. Tell us first, Greg, the capital structure, your capital needs this year, and then also if you can talk to the key shareholder backers that are on the roster.
1: Well, look, uh, Alligator is a, a very small explorer. Uh, founded in 2010, um, largely with a group of, uh, of uranium explorers, experienced uranium explorers who were involved in uh, the Westmoreland project and other projects uh, who took up ground in Arnhem Land. Um, we've held the ground in Arnhem Land and explored it for, for many years. A lot of it's been about fundamental scientific exploration uh, because in the old days it was fly over, look for radiation, and drill it. Whereas now it's really looking for the deeper structures and things that are created, the Ranger Ranger Project and the Japaluk mine. So, so the fundamentals we're doing. In terms of where we see the overall sense in alligator, we're, we've uh, we've got us, we've only made a small uranium resource discovery in uh, in Arnhem Land. Um, we're a very small company, only about a three million market cap. We have a lot of shares on issue and and we will need to do some fundamental recapitalisation of the company going forward. But at the moment, um, we've, we've tended to spend less on our Western Arnhem land exploration because it is expensive exploration there. The, the prizes are great, it's the highest grade, uranium grade area in the country. And we have the second largest land holding. we're about to increase that. We have good relationships, we wanna maintain that. But that, that area of exploration really needs good market support we picked up a, a new conceptual project in South Australia to the north of, uh, of the Honeymoon area in the same sort of formations but associated with the Cooper Basin oil and gas fields and the concept in here in Big Lake Uranium is the largest ISR fields in the world are associated with, in some way with hydrocarbon basins Kazakhstan in Texas and Wyoming but there's only been one company 10 years ago did a little bit of drilling around some of the uranium spikes found in the oil and gas wells of the Cooper Basin in the far north of South Australia. And we believe they didn't really look at where the, the potential paleo channel uh, traps are, so which is some distance from where the spikes were found. So we are evaluating that some initial work done by two private geos, we're expanding on it, and it's a fairly cheap exploration. We're funded to do that through this year, and uh, and we're currently negotiating the access agreements with the local indigenous groups, and then we'll be getting on the ground for some very quick passive seismic EM work followed up by some air core drilling. Now that's conceptual, but it's a very interesting concept. There's two to 300 PPM uranium already within the area. There's known links to to the deeper granite uranium basement and there's fluids. So um, we're gonna test that concept, but this year, Uh, That will be our exploration play and uh, we are making sure we maintain the relationships in our Arnhem Land work. We have some very, very good targets there. We engaged a couple of very experienced uranium geologists to help us last year review the Arnhem Land area. And and while I won't name them, uh, they've got more than 40 years experience in in the business or on the discovery teams of Ranger and other projects but they've helped us retarget and refocus on, on the, the structural and archean basement models we need to look for the right uranium in Arnhem Land. And so when the market's ready, we'll be ready to go there. Um, the nickel cobalt in Northern Italy is an interesting play, is getting some interest from within Europe, where there's fundamental um, desire from European Union and countries to for, for these strategic minerals. So we'll we'll look at that as a, a separate entity and, and potentially attract investment into it somewhere in Europe. But our focus this year is uh, Big Lake Uranium, test that concept, have a good look around that area because it just hasn't been done before. There is uranium present and it's associated with hydrocarbons because of course it's reductant, it's ISR style deposit. So Arnhem Land and uh, and Big Lake they're our key focus. But we had a fundamental shift in the board last year and we have agreed that we are going to look at um, other uranium projects. So we're currently looking at existing resource dormant projects within Australia, within the US and some within Africa. So we have some support from our key uh, shareholders um, uh, to take that forward. And we've been active in that for some time, but uh, we'll make announcements of those sort of things as and with our current report. In terms of the shareholding of the group, um, the, the founding shareholders were largely retail, um, which came, and uh, Taylor Collison out of uh, Sydney and Adelaide, they came into the company in 2010. In 2013 there was a shift. We had a new company, McCallum Group, a private group, which was uh, owned and run by Peter McIntyre and John Mayne. Your your listeners will know Peter McIntyre, who was the EMD of extract when they discovered the uh, the hue deposit and John Maine was on the board and was the head of exploration there. John in particular um, was head of Rio Tinto's exploration throughout the Americas for many many years uh, and time has gone by and is a brilliant uh, explorationist and they really reshaped the thinking of the company uh, within Alligator back in 2014-15-16 to really take a more scientific approach in Arnhem Land in particular and that's what we brought in some a lot of R&D, a lot of CSIRO research work from Australia. And um, we have some techniques now for looking underneath the sandstone and finding uh, very weak signals of uh, potential locations of deposits, which we'd like to pursue in the future when subject to market. So McCallum Group is still the largest shareholder. Um, we still have support from, from uh, key clients of Taylor Collison and uh, BW Equities out of Melbourne, and uh, they're the main shareholders in the group. Um, on the board, uh, Peter McIntyre's on the board, John Mayne's now retired, uh, and myself, uh, Andrew Vigar from Mining, who's the Principal of Mining Associates, the founding MD, in fact, he's on the board. And so we have a combination of good mine operations people and good exploration people across our board.
0: Can you talk about, and from my understanding, Alligator Energy is your chosen Uranium vehicle, and it's something that you're going to focus on as this market improves. Can mm-hmm. you speak to, and I know you wouldn't name the geologists, but can you speak to just a little bit more about key management, what you see there? And then also, can you speak to when alligator is, is going to start to pull the trigger when the market provides you enough evidence to start moving?
1: Okay. Well, look, in, in, in our team uh, currently, uh, uh, Pete Morehouse, our expression manager, he's been, uh, been working with alligator 10 years. Um, he was a senior geologist on, on a number of uranium projects, both at Westmoreland uh, in Western Australia and the and Calcrete projects and in Africa. So he's got a broad base experience in uranium. We have a project geologist who's just got seven to 10 years of experience in uranium. We have a call on about three other very experienced geological consultants, as I mentioned before, who have a broad range of experience. And we call them in to review projects or review tasks. and and uh, Uh, going forward now along with that because we're now looking at potential resource projects that we'd like to bring into the group in the future we we have a core consulting team which I won't name that uh, that I know from my past and that have fundamental experience in uranium processing in ISR in environmental and approvals processes uh, as well as of course the geology as I mentioned so we have a team established behind us of around four to five people that we can call on to help evaluate projects and, and take them forward. And um, as a small company, we flex, we we conserve cash. Uh, um, as you, your listeners will know, if they've looked at our website, I'm part-time. I will flex my time up. If we're doing a deal like Big Lake, we get it in place. And then I flex my time down and the geologists flex their time up. So we. We make sure we use shareholders' cash, and we're all shareholders uh, as well. We make sure we use shareholders' cash wisely to to match the fundamental interest in the market and the achievements we want to make. So right now we're focused on some geology approvals and geology in the ground, but behind the scenes myself and uh, the the M&A guys are looking at other projects.
0: And what is your position, Greg? Now that we're on that topic a little bit, what is your position on compensation for an early stage company? And how are you applying that to Alligator?
1: As I mentioned briefly, so I'm uh, a director of the company, and and, and I get, for example, a, a director's stipend. and, and uh, I assume that takes care of at least three days a month of my of my work, no question. And then I would, just, uh, I've got a fairly modest salary day rate that goes on top of that. So I'm I'm happy to to maintain that. Um, we have some incentive targets, short and long term, which were purely just just uh, shares. So we are fundamentally linked to the success of the company. And that's the, the same applies to the, the other employees in the company. Uh, we, we flex the day rate, we manage the workload such that, well, there's a lot to do at the moment, but now there's not, you back off. And so it means you to maintain that core team, you need to allow them sometimes to do some other things, which we find to do. So we have that flexibility of maintaining the core team uh, by allowing them to, to jump out and do some other things. And more and more small explorers are are doing that sort of thing. You you need to make sure that you're doing the work at the pace you can because sometimes you have a delay for an approval or permits or engagement or negotiations. And and it's silly to just maintain full-time geologists being idle while you wait for that. So so we really have a flexible structure and and remuneration within our company. And we'll maintain that uh, until such a time that we're all flat out and then we need to recruit. And that's just a sensible approach as a, as a shareholder and as, a, as a, a part owner of the company and um, as an MD.
0: I agree a hundred percent. I think that uh, I would include bear markets to that list as well, where you don't need the full-time effort. And mm. I think that makes a lot of sense. And speak to your guys' capital needs for 2020. And then also, can you speak to the Alligator River uranium area? talk about the importance of this area and why you guys continue to remain focused there
1: okay well we, we have the capital we need for our immediate exploration programs in South Australia they're, they're modest uh, we uh, we as as I just described we can stretch that capital but we can get the work done on the ground to uh, initiate potential discoveries hopefully and uh, and uh, take them forward and, and that should generate its own interest in that case in terms of um, future capital leads it's going to depend on the market uh, we have very very much targets in Arnhem land and, and your mention of the Alligator Rivers uranium project area we're about to announce an increased area there we've been working and it's been public knowledge and our announcements have been working on this package of tenements called Narbalik North this is a package of eight tenements adjacent to the historical Narbalik mine which was a which was a high-grade mine it was 1.84 percent uh, operated during the 80s and mined out, and also adjacent to a uh, the highest one of the highest grade intersections ever found in Arnhem Land of around six uh, percent. So this Narwalak North package is is uh, going through the final stages of being granted. This is very interesting for us because it's to the north of the area we've been working. It's got less sandstone cover and in some places very little. And so our techniques that we've developed for looking under the sandstone should be much more effective, should be cheaper exploration, it's more accessible, um, but it's got the potential to again have that high-grade uranium, which is the Arnhem, Arnhem Land area is known for. So that's a very exciting development for us. And uh, in in some of the presentations we've put out last year, in particular, we've done a huge amount of study into the Ranger Three Deeps deposit. So so the, the Ranger all bodies that were mined, Ranger 1 and Ranger 3, were at the surface. In fact, they, they were, the unconformity of the sandstone building eroded away and they were at the surface now they were mined, but down by radiometrics. Ranger 3 Deeps is a structurally related project and it really forms the basis of formation of the fluids that come up from below and into the structures that form these Ranger ore bodies. Now, we're a fundamental believer that the, the, the association with the Archean basement where the granite source is. And these structures are what is fundamental to these sort of deposits, not the unconformity. The unconformity is very key in the Athabasca region, but it's not. Not we don't believe it's as key here. Only small uh, deposits have been found around the unconformity. The big deposits have been found structurally related to the source of uranium in the basement. And that's the the science work that we've done, the geology work we've done, and that's what we'd like to focus on going forwards. So at the right time in the market, we've got a huge series of targets. We've whittled down to a key number of priorities, and the combination of the the, the Siegel structural work, the the fundamental radiometric lead isotope analysis, and uh, that we've done is really starting to highlight some target areas we'd like to drill. So that that area is the, the proven high-grade zone in Australia, and uh, and that's why we fundamentally want to be there
0: so just so i'm clear so you guys are pretty much you guys have already identified what you need to punch but you're waiting for the market to move before you punch them so you're not even going to try to screw around and and try to do some drills here and 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 look at some stuff here you're not even going to mess with that you already know what you want to punch when the Mm -hmm. market conditions are right you're going to punch them and it's going to be pretty cut and dried is that correct
1: Fundamentally, for Arnhem Land, to, to a large extent, yes. We, we can do some initial work on the ground, which is the, the, the cheap work that we do in terms of uh, uh, initial surveys uh, for lead isotope, chemical, those sort of things, and the deep work. And that can be fairly inexpensive. And we'll, so we'll prepare that and get that uh, underway. But the, the drilling required to get this done requires a certain amount of funds. and. Uh, Look, we, we know there will be a move in the market. We believe that will occur. We're looking at other projects like Big Lake and that to help uh, have some fundamental value to shareholders. But the big value to shareholders when the market supports in really looking at the deeper structural targets that we've now found in Land, but they cost some money. And we're not just not willing to dilute our shareholders at the, at the current low price to do that just yet. We, we need to have the right fundamental
0: market support. Great, right, and you guys have pretty much set up right now, the way it goes is, is the the burn rate for the company is very low and mm-hmm. essentially it's just waiting for the market conditions to turn, which is much better in my opinion than trying to continue to delineate and give results, et cetera, when the market doesn't care. That's a good point to bring up. Let's shift mm-hmm. over to the Big Lake Uranium project. Can you just talk briefly about the interest that you guys have at this time and what is the plan with this asset going forward?
1: Yeah, well, this area in the northern part of South Australia, where there's you know, already been proven ISR uranium deposits from Beverly to Four Mile to Honeymoon, uh, all through that region. In in the northern part of this area, there's been very little exploration. One, because it's a long way out, um, uh, but two, there was not. There's no fundamental radioactive signal at surface. Um, so to, to, the, to the west of Beverly, where the, the formation waters come out of the Flinders Ranges, there's radioactive signals. So there were sort of logical reasons to look in that area. Then the um, big Lake Uranium area, the Cooper Basin area, they're on a gas deposits. they're two and a half to three kilometres deep. You've got dome structures down there where those areas are trapped, but you've got structures, deep vertical structures that intersect the, the, the basement granite rocks uh, where these domes are. And uh, those granites are exceedingly hot as in geothermally hot. And they're geothermally hot because they have a relatively higher level of of uranium present in the granites. That's a known fact. There's a geothermal map in our presentations of the the heat and the heat flow in the area. And it really is a big heat target underneath that tube basin. So there's there's active uh, uranium present. There are structures linking that uranium and uh, the upshoot of geothermal fluids up to the surface sediments there are gamma spikes in the oil and gas wells that are drilled because they they do gamma log to look at structure and these gamma spikes can look uh, uh, very much like the you know the tail of, of, uh, of uranium channels. Now what we're looking for is down hydraulic gradient from those basin structures is has there been enough accumulation of uranium through fluids flowing up from down deep into these air formation channels, which is the same formation as essentially Huntington and Beverly. And um, no one assessed them. Uh, there is uranium present there. Some drilling in 2010, as I mentioned, found 2 to 300 PPM in and around the oil and gas wells. But we're now looking some kilometres away from that area where we believe the traps are. So we're going to be looking for paleo channels and in shallow sediments, this is 100 to 200 metres deep max. Using passive seismic, which is uh, most people know is just an instrument on the ground measuring natural ground noise. There is no induced seismic, or airborne EM, which is a quick two to three day task. So that's a very quick way to identify channels. And then a Toyota four wheel drive mounted air core rig is adequate to test these in terms of simple drilling. So you're talking about an expenditure of of a few hundred thousand dollars to do the exploration as compared to Arnhem Land, where the prize could be bigger. But the exploration is more expensive. So so Big Lake offers a great opportunity with the concept, existing uranium present, but is there the traps that could form it? There are these sort of traps in the other parts of South Australia to the south of the zone. Um, so we think there's some good opportunity for testing, and that's why we're looking at it.
0: Well, Greg, what stage in the market will a company pull the trigger on wrapping up efforts for Alligator? Can you speak to you know what you guys are looking for in the market? Maybe it's a price, mm-hmm maybe a certain sentiment can you speak to that and then also strategy end game for alligator what's the exit for the company are you guys looking at becoming a producer or do you guys see alligator as an acquisition
1: three points i want to make to answer your questions the first is apart from our expression as i mentioned because of our operational team background and our experienced team of consultants we are looking for fundamentally economic resource projects which are in holding patterns in certain jurisdictions around uh, Australia and overseas. So, we think it's the right time to accumulate projects, uh, in particular resource projects, additional resource projects within uranium. So, we are working on that now and we're going to to continue that. So, that can make a fundamental shift in, in the asset structure of the company if we're successful in doing that. The second thing is in what will give us a signal going forward, well, really it will be. Um, when we can get the support to to do some reasonable drilling programs at our key targets in Arnhem Land, because they've got the, the, let's say, the best chance of getting the highest grade, most likely uh, projects. So if that occurs and we can get uh, the the two to $3 million or more that we might need to do that work, then then we'll do that. So that's really going to depend on our share price, on the market support, and I, and I can't really say where that is. It might be price related, uranium price related. It might, it might be some other factor. And and the the third aspect, we have the expertise within our group, uh, both within myself and our team, but also the the access to expertise and a consulting basis, to to start up uh, fundamental uranium mining operations. If we found a very significant project within Arnhem Land. Logically, you would probably do that in joint venture with a larger company, because that will be more expensive, it will be a larger um, potential project, it will be longer term, and uh, sensibly, as a small company, it will be sensible to do a JV with a large group. With uh, a smaller fundamental project, for example, if we made an ISR discovery at Big Lake and we expanded it out and it looked economic, that's something we could manage, I think, through our group. Bringing in the expertise necessary, of which there is a vast quantity in South Australia, to, to take that forward. So we we are, we are sensible about this. We know from the last um, uranium boom, not many projects got started. A lot of people believe they could become operators, but um, it takes a certain skill set. And uh, and of course, John Borshoff and I uh, have discussed this many many times about the skill set you need to get a, a uranium mining operation going. And it's the sort of learnings that I mentioned to you before, the fundamental management of radiation safety issues, otherwise governments will shut you down. The fundamental engagement with community and indigenous people, otherwise you don't get started. So so there's a lot of work to do and uh, not every exploration company is set up to do that. We have a combination of skills and we could do, we believe a small uh, operation is set up. I hope we find a large discovery and I hope that makes our shareholders happy. That's their aim.
0: Greg, who should investors pay attention to in this market besides yourself?
1: Okay. Well, look, there's not many companies that have made money out of uranium, and uh, it's really a few of the major groups, such as Cameco, that have made money out of uranium production in a consistent manner. They manage themselves up and down. They manage the, the market uh, that they can to their extent in terms of their marketing, and and they have uh, they can make fundamental dollars. Um, there are uh, companies which have successfully started mining operations, I think in a good manner, and I'm talking about Air Energy and Peninsula, um, of course, uh, Paladin back in John days, and they started up in Namibia. And I think you need to look for people who take a, a sensible, realistic approach to starting up a, a uranium operation or, or have access to uranium operation. And they know the fundamentals of approvals, of government and of operations. Uh, without that, you're gonna go nowhere. So, so I think uh, the companies I mentioned, the ones that have already been in place and are going forward. I think uh, UEC started up projects with around care and maintenance. I believe there'll be some other US projects that, that will start up. I also believe that there'll be some, in the right longevity of price, you'll get some of the more significant operations start up in, in Africa. Uh, They are generally lower grade and the issue there is, of course, politics can change. So more recently, Tanzanian politics has become a, a little bit of an issue, whereas five or six years ago it was perfectly stable. So you've got to be careful in Africa in terms of which projects and which jurisdictions could start at what time. Within Australia, there is more and more an amenable government approach to uranium mining. Yes, there's still individual states that can change their mind, but in general, now even those governments that might be in power in a state uh, that might have a fundamental opposition to uranium mining, if a mine is approved or is operating, they will they will honour that and support that. So Australia has now had a shift in its approach. So so I think you know, there's the Australian companies. Um, Beverly, of course, is still going well with General Atomics. Uh, Boss Resources uh, have got a good asset there because of the original expenditure put in there. So they are. Getting themselves ready to go fundamentally here, which I think is exciting, and um, yeah, they're they're probably the, the ones that I'm more familiar with because I focus on the operators who are operating in a tight manner and and making sure they they make a profitable operation.
0: Well, I think that's a good place for investors to start, Greg. So I, I think we'll we'll leave that part there. Why shouldn't potential investors who are listening look hard at Alligator Energy as one of their uranium exposure vehicles? What would you say to them?
1: Alligator Energy has a significant skill base of geological financial research, in particular in the Arnhem Land region, which is the highest grade region of Australia with some of the best potential. We have the second largest land holding in that area, apart from Vimy, which is, uh, and our landholding is about to increase. So the best opportunity for a significant discovery to create a mine that could run for 30 or 40 years like Ranger yeah, is in that region. And so that's why we're there. So that's a uh, we're well advanced in that. Uh, as advanced as only one or maybe two other companies in that region. So, so that's why we're excited. We are willing to jump out and look at other opportunities. We have a geological base in terms of knowledge uh, that's allowed us to look at things like Big Lake. There's a fundamental belief that ISR uranium mining uh, will continue as a major source of uranium for the future. It's currently 55% of the world's uranium production. The potential to have a new ISR field in South Australia, which is a massively supportive state for uranium and uh, and be able to start and advance a project there is fantastic. It's one of the reasons we like South Australia. I've worked here a lot. I know the area well, I know the government well, and they, they have a very, very strong skill base. So in terms of uranium, uh, the second largest land holding and well-advanced geological science in Arnhem Land, the highest grade potential here in Australia, and now uh, a, a project in South Australia, the best jurisdiction to operate for uranium in Australia. So they would be two fundamental core reasons that, that I think shareholders could be should be interested. And along with that, we're realistic. There's a flat uranium market at the moment. We have a nickel cobalt play in Northern Italy, which is awaiting drill permits, and uh, we're generating interest out of Europe. To, to give that its own support. But that's that's the combination of reasons,
0: I think. And best way for the audience to reach out to you and to the company?
1: Well, the, uh, the, the website that we have uh, for alligatorenergy.com.au has our contact details and information on it, and we keep that as up-to-date as we can. Uh, along with that, um, in our presentations, you'll see phone numbers and contact numbers uh, which are off our website. And please feel free to give me a call directly And anyone that's interested in the company, I'm happy to talk.
0: All right, sir. Well, thanks for coming on and, and look forward to chatting again soon, Greg.
1: Thank you very much for the opportunity, Andrew. It's been good to be able to talk to your listeners. Thank you.